Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, editor of GP Online, and as usual, I'm joined today by our news editor, Nick Bostock, and our senior reporter, Luke Haynes. This week, we'll be looking at plans to ramp up the COVID-19 booster vaccination programme and what this means for GPs and their teams. We'll also be discussing the latest annual GMC State of Medical Education and Practice report and what this tells us about what's going on in the profession at the moment. Later in the podcast, I'll be speaking with Dr Ellen Fallows, a GP in Oxfordshire and Director of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine's Learning Academy. We'll be talking about what exactly lifestyle medicine is, the evidence to support its use and how GPs and other clinicians can make use of it in their day-to-day practice. And we have a Christmas good news story to wrap things up. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. This week, the government announced plans to significantly ramp up the rollout of COVID-19 booster jabs in response to a surge of cases, much of which has been driven by the new Omicron variant. Scientists have warned that two doses of the vaccine do not appear to provide much protection against Omicron, but a third booster shot significantly increases protection. On Sunday night, Prime Minister Boris Johnson warned the UK faced an Omicron emergency with a tidal wave of cases now sweeping across the country. As a result, he said the government was bringing forward the deadline to offer average eligible adults a booster dose from the end of January to the end of December. It's a huge task facing the NHS, with estimates suggesting it will need to deliver over one million jabs a day to reach the target. All parts of the NHS have been instructed that the booster campaign is now a critical priority, alongside obviously urgent and emergency care. So Nick, what's all this likely to mean for GP practices day to day in the coming weeks? So, as you've mentioned, the NHS is now aiming to offer a COVID-19 booster jab to all eligible adults by the end of December. And to try and give you a sense of what this means, by the end of Monday 13th of December, there were around 20 million people yet to receive a booster or third dose who had received their second dose at least three months ago. So 20 million eligible people to go. And what this means for GPs and GP-led vaccination sites is that they're now part of an NHS-wide operation that, if everyone comes forward, will be trying to deliver more than a million doses of COVID-19 vaccine a day to meet the government's accelerated target. And to put that in perspective, in the year since the the UK began rolling out COVID-19 vaccinations, the highest number of jabs achieved in a single day is about 844,000. And that figure is a real outlier. It's it's around two and a half times the daily average. So it is, as you said, a huge task. The government says Omicron is spreading faster than any previous variant of coronavirus. And Health and Social Care Secretary Sajid Javid told Parliament this week that the UK faces a sharp rise in deaths and hospitalisations among infected patients. The the government has called the Accelerated Vaccination Programme a new national mission Uh, And a number of measures are now in place or emerging to try and free up GP time to support it. In the past couple of weeks, the the health service confirmed a string of changes to the GP contract, suspending parts of the QAF and enhanced services and shifting around some other funding to incentivise practices to deliver vaccinations. And this week, NHS England wrote to GPs saying it was now time to, quote, pull out all of the stops and the practices should now look at pausing routine and non-urgent care and that even practices not involved in the vaccination programme should consider redeploying staff to support the COVID jab drive. And practices and PCNs that opted out of the current wave of COVID-19 jabs have been asked to reconsider their position 
and sites delivering jabs have been told to aim to deliver jabs every day at a level that matches or exceeds the best ever day they've had in previous phases of the campaign. So is there really the capacity within the NHS and primary care to actually do this, do we think? Of course, that's a major doubt. The UK Health Security Agency said earlier this week that there may be as many as 200,000 new cases of COVID a day already. Uh, and as cases rise, more and more of the NHS workforce will be cr- required to isolate as they themselves become infected. So one piece of good news on that front is that we've now had confirmation that NHS staff will not be required automatically to self-isolate if they're a close contact of an Omicron case and can instead take lateral flow tests for 10 days and a PTR test. It, it's basically returned to uh, the advice as it was before the emergence of, uh, of, of Omicron. And um, that should help reduce unnecessary staff absences. Meanwhile, the NHS has said it's bringing in thousands of volunteers to support the accelerated vaccination drive. Military personnel have been brought in to assist in regional rollout efforts, along with a number of military planners to help with logistics. We've obviously mentioned reductions in contract requirements, and these could help some practices shift staff to the vaccination campaign. But we know also that the GP workforce remains in decline. We, We reported only last week that the latest monthly figure showed a slight drop in the fully qualified GP workforce. And the BMA said that the NHS as a whole remains massively understaffed. Yeah, I mean, they're also asking local authorities to redeploy staff as well, aren't they? Including firefighters, police officers, although I, I believe both of those professions are also suffering from their own shortages of staff. So there might be a bit of a problem there. Um one of the things, obviously, practices are most going to be concerned about is what they can drop. What work can they actually really stop doing, apart from obviously those contract things you mentioned? We're expecting guidance from the BMA and RCGP about workload prioritisation. What are they likely to recommend, do you think? So as we record this, updated guidance for the BMA and RCGP on workload prioritisation has yet to emerge. But NHS England has said it's coming shortly. And it's worth looking back to last November when a a previous version of the guidance recommended that GPs should stop all non-essential work as the second wave of the pandemic put huge pressure on services. And although GPs will want as much clarity as possible over what exactly they can stop doing, and of course the temporary changes to the contract we've already mentioned provide some of that, the previous workload prioritisation advice said there was, quote, no one-size-fits-all blueprint for how practices should operate. So this guidance is likely broadly to be about giving practices permission to exercise their clinical judgment. However, the prioritisation advice last time came with a six-point scale And at the top end of that, it describes a situation where general practice remains open, but with a very restricted service. And it says, quote, all non-essential work stopped to allow general practice to cope with a very significant, uh, potentially overwhelming demand relating to COVID-19, as well as acute deterioration in long-term conditions, new symptoms indicating potentially serious disease, and the COVID-19 vaccination rollout. So if, uh, if the situation reaches something that justifies going to the top end of that scale identified by the uh, BMA and RCGP advice, perhaps that's the kind of situation that we could expect to see. Yeah, I mean, I know that some GPs are really concerned about this because so much of the work they're dealing with now is a result of delays to hospital care and people who've put off coming forward for help in earlier waves of the pandemic. I mean, a lot of these people really are quite poorly and it will be quite difficult for them to drop that work. But also, you know, isn't there a risk now potentially reducing services now by delaying routine work in hospitals and putting off routine care and general practice? It's just going to sort of compound all this problem further. I mean, obviously, I think most people recognise the importance of doing the booster programme as quickly as possible. 
because if Omicron overwhelms the NHS, then we're potentially in an even worse position. But really, either way, services are being cut, which will lead to even longer waiting lists in 2022 and some really difficult challenges for the NHS in the new year. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, we've reported on the fact that um, record hospital waiting lists that we have at the moment are driving up pressure on general practice and that millions of patients waiting for elective treatment and even cancer care are coming back to their practices repeatedly, seeking support while they await hospital care. Um, And of course, we've reported on the fact that general practice delivered 30 million appointments in October alone, even before COVID jabs uh, are factored in. And, um, you know, GPs are really concerned that as as much as they need elbow room to help deliver vaccinations, further delays to routine care in primary and secondary care now will simply deepen the already intense workload pressure they're under further down the line. Well, one bit of good news for GPs is that a 15 minute observation period that was required for anyone receiving the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines has been temporarily scrapped to help speed things up. Um, I know many PCN sites were finding this increasingly problematic in terms of the numbers they could vaccinate. The UK chief medical officers and the MHRA have agreed the change because they felt at the minute it would cause more harm than good given the need to vaccinate as many people as possible as quickly as possible. Uh, And also the chance of an allergic reaction to either vaccine is really very low. Although just to point out, the observation period does remain in place for anyone with a history of allergic reactions. I mean, we've obviously talked about that this is being a huge ask for the NHS. Do we know anything more about funding or any additional money for all of this? In terms of funding for the health service as a whole, uh, NHS England has said it's in talks with the Treasury about a new injection of funding to support the response to Omicron. Um, And for general practice, we've reported previously on the increased fees available per vaccination in the current phase of the vaccination campaign compared with previous waves. Uh, And some of the changes to the GP contracts I mentioned earlier will also provide some additional support for practices. So some of those changes are simply about income protection for general practice, such as suspending quaff targets uh, with practice to be paid on the, uh, the basis of achievement in previous years. But NHS England has also said it's repurposing around £112 million in funding available through the Impact and Investment Fund. This is money that will be made available by suspending some indicators linked to that fund. And PCNs will have access to a share of around £60 million to put towards services and workforce, while the remaining £50 million or so will incentivise practices to take part in the vaccination campaign. So despite all this push on vaccinations, the BMA has also said we need to see further measures introduced to stop the spread of a virus. What does it want to see, Nick? That's right. The the, the BMA has said uh, measures introduced by the government so far simply don't go far enough. Um, Scotland this week introduced guidance recommending a limit on the number of households that should come together over Christmas. But in England, the Plan B measures brought in by the government stop well short of that. Uh, In England, the BMA has said the government response effectively leans entirely on the booster programme and that it believes this is a mistake. The association has called for measures including the return of two metre social distancing requirements, increased requirements around face coverings, more limits on large indoor gatherings and changes to infection control measures in healthcare settings. Um, Now, the government hasn't ruled out further COVID-19 restrictions, but as we've seen from the rebellion in Parliament this week, the government could be embarrassed by any vote on extending measures and may well seek to avoid that. And meanwhile, Sajid Javid effectively boasted in Parliament this week that the UK has, quote, far fewer restrictions than are in place in most of Europe. So the government appears very much determined to keep restrictions to a bare minimum. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see if anything does happen on that. I mean, I suppose uh, the big thing that will determine that is what levels of hospitalisations we see in the in the coming weeks. Thanks, Nick. 
This week also saw the GMC publish its annual State of Medical Education and Practice Report, which takes an in-depth look at what's going on in all branches of the medical profession across the UK and medical education. Perhaps unsurprisingly to many listeners, it paints a fairly bleak picture about the state of things in general practice. Luke, you've been looking at the report. Can you talk through some of the headline findings? Yeah, um, so it's not the most encouraging report. So um, if we cast our minds back uh, to last year, the findings of the Education and Practice Survey were slightly more positive. Um, So, for example, fewer GPs said they were struggling with their workload and more were satisfied with their day-to-day work. But in 2021, the results um, are much closer to what we saw in 2019. Um, So 54% of GPs said they were struggling with workload this year. That's um, double last year's percentage and actually surpasses the 50% figure from 2019. Um, Around a third of GPs said that they were at high risk of burnout um, compared to 18% um, of other specialists and 11% of doctors in training. So that one is really a lot higher um, and not good to see. So it's unsurprising that job satisfaction has fallen by 19 percentage points uh, since 2019. Now, we know that this report acts as a litmus test for the well-being of GPs and reveals their working conditions, but it also gives us a slight indication of how the workforce may be impacted. And one of the key takes from the report, I thought, was that almost half of GPs said they were likely to reduce their contracted um, hours in the next year. And this was up from 35% last year. So that's obviously something that the GMC GP leaders, um, NHS England and the government should be concerned about, particularly with falling numbers of GPs already. The report also had a lot of detail in there specifically about how GP trainees are faring at the moment. What did it have to say about them? Yeah, um, a similarly negative picture. So for GP trainees and trainers, um, the report found that workload and burnout issues were more marked uh, among the profession, uh, that being general practice. So 39% of trainees in general practice had heavy or very heavy workloads, um, nine percentage points higher than in 2019. This figure was 87% among GP trainers, um, so that's six percentage points higher than two years ago. However, there was some slightly positive news surrounding GP training, which is good. Um, We always try and have a look for it. So 96% of GP trainers said that uh, their working environment was fully supportive, with a similar proportion feeling valued in their workplace, uh, 94%. And 86% of GP trainees rated the quality of their teaching as good or very good. And that was the second highest out of all, all disciplines. So... I think it would be fair to say that GP trainees and trainers are are content with what they're being taught and maybe how they're being allowed to teach. But workload right now is um, is through the roof and perhaps souring the experience. It sounds like that's pretty impressive. You found a, a, a positive story in amongst all of all of that. Um, I mean, obviously, we've talked a lot in the podcast about some of the factors behind many of the problems that have been raised or are shown in those statistics from that report, haven't we? Yeah. So I think we know that GPs are are dealing with an unprecedented workload at the minute. Um, They delivered more than 30 million appointments in October, and that rises to um, 34 million once you take into account COVID vaccination uh, appointments. And we also heard from LMCs recently um, that GPs are working sort of 13 to 14 hour days with some of them receiving abuse despite all of their efforts from from patients and the general public. 
on, on top of this, the workforce is falling as well, as I sort of alluded to earlier. So just in October, we lost 40 GPs, as Nick reported on, this month. And BMA estimates also suggest that fully qualified full-time equivalent GP workforce um, has dropped by 1,744 over the past six years, leaving the average GP in England caring for um, around an extra 300 patients. So all of this together just means that there are less GPs to do the work. So naturally, workloads will increase and doctors will start to will start to feel this. And of course, as we mentioned earlier, the um, expanded booster jab is a colossal task for GPs, um, and they're going to have to sort of try their best to to offer um, a jab to everyone by the end of December. So they've really got their work cut out. So I'm joined today by Dr Ellen Fallows, who's a GP in Oxfordshire and the Learning Academy Director for the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. She also runs video group clinics supporting people to make and sustain lifestyle changes for self-management of long-term conditions. And Ellen also works with the NHS Type 2 Diabetes Remission Pilots and with the RCGP as the college's weight management clinical advisor. Thanks so much for joining us, Ellen. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Emma. Firstly, can you explain a bit about what lifestyle medicine is and what makes it different to just providing advice about healthy living? I would love to because this is such an area of confusion. And at the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine, we're doing a lot of work to try and clarify what exactly it means. So the def- definition that we've come up with from uh, the BSLM which started for last time, isn't it? is that it's evidence-based healthcare that supports behaviour change through person-centred techniques to improve mental well-being, healthy relationships, physical activity, healthy eating, sleep, and minimisation of harmful substances or behaviours. But what does that really mean? Um, I mean, I think in, in plain language, it just means this is an additional option for people with health problems rather than just medications and surgery alone. And research has shown that with the right support, some of these lifestyle changes can be just as good or even more effective than um, medications and surgery. And the thing that makes me most excited about this is that in some instances, these changes can put long-term conditions into remission. So reversal of things like the processes that lead to high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, fatty liver disease, depression, and, and there's lots of work into many other conditions. Lifestyle medicine isn't lifestyle advice. It's very different. There are three key principles, the first being a recognition and action to address the socioeconomic determinants of of health, which perhaps we'll come to discuss. The second being behavior change techniques. So proven ways to support people to, to, to make and sustain um, behavior. Because most people know what it is they need to do. It's just very hard to do in our current environment and with all the challenges around us. And the third being these um, six pillars of lifestyle medicine. So how did you first become interested in lifestyle medicine? Well, it was my own patience, actually. I, I think I have to be humble and, and admit that initially I was a bit arrogant about the patients who came to me and said, look, um, I've I've cured my type 2 diabetes. I've come off insulin. And back then I was, um, as the diabetes lead in my practice, I, I was going to courses where I was being told, you know, it's a, it's a chronic progressive condition. You must warn people early that they will end up on insulin. Um, and, and I was like, oh, don't be ridiculous. Um, but uh, there was one case when I really, I don't know why I really started to listen to um, the patient and talked through well, exactly they were eating actually at the time. And it turned out that because of the desperate thirst that comes with uh, diabetes that's poorly controlled, they were quenching their thirst with, uh, it turned out, three litres of orange juice because they thought that that was healthy. It was, you know, it's, it's um, fruit. You're told to eat fruit and fruit juice is meant to be one of the uh, sort of five a day. Um, 
And, you know, we worked out that there was something like eight teaspoons of sugar in each one of those cartons, if not more, and, and added that up advised them to gosh replace it with water and they came back literally unrecognizable and with normal blood sugars and i'd just never seen them their blood sugars were something like 14 percent um hb1c of 14 percent when i met them and completely normalized through just that intervention because i'd never previously talked to people about food and physical activity and I don't know I mean just maybe thought somebody else was doing it or I don't know didn't think it worked or wasn't important or that people sort of knew um and then I was very lucky to be involved in a very small pilot trial um from the Nuffield Department of Primary Healthcare in Oxford led by Liz Morris um where they randomized a very it's a it's a pilot it's a very small numbers 30 people um into three arms so usual advice just eat healthy advice and the third arm being an actual behavior change program. So, you know, supporting people with real life primary care nurses to change what they eat, to, to reduce their, their calories into a healthy, healthier diet. And the, the patients we supported on that, I mean, they lost on average a stone, that group compared to the other groups. They, they dropped their blood sugar despite coming off um, hypoglycemic agents and a, and a couple of them reversed their diabetes and from type two diabetes, this is. And from that experience, I thought, oh my God, I mean, I've, I don't know about, about your listeners, but I had never cured anybody. And we're not meant to use the word cure because, of course, their risks still remain. And if they don't maintain those, but it felt it felt good. You know, it felt so much better than piling on all these drugs that make people put on weight, feel rubbish. And then I discovered the BSLM and, and learned about the real evidence behind this that's that's really rapidly growing. You mentioned earlier the six pillars of lifestyle medicine. Can you just explain what they are? So I love the fact that the top two actually are probably one of the uh, some of the most important. So the top two are sort of mental well-being and healthy relationships. And I think there's a there's a piece of work that always sticks in my mind. A, a global study by Professor Elizabeth Holt Lundstad, who looked at millions and millions of of, of people and their data about this feeling of being isolated and found that it was a bigger risk factor for early death than obesity and smoking combined. And so I think, you know, that there's just not enough conversations happening in primary care around, you know, the relationships around people and, and their general well-being, purpose and meaning in life. So those are the first two um, that we like to do a lot of work on. And then, you know, the one that I think gets everybody in a bit of a storm um, that's only just one of them is the healthy eating uh, physical activity, I think, is a bit less controversial um, and, and everybody can get behind that. Um, and then there's avoidance of, of, of harmful substances, harmful behaviours. You know, we talk a lot about um, you know, screen time and social media and things, not just the usual sort of alcohol and smoking. And then the importance of sleep for health. So, again, I've, I'd had no training in sleep, um, but, but interventions that can help people um, prioritise sleep as well as get better quality sleep. So those are the six pillars. Is it something that GPs can actually do in practice? Other GPs can do in practice in a 10 minute consultation do you think definitely i mean i'm do i'm doing it many colleagues of mine are doing it but i would caveat that with i don't think anything effective can be done in 10 minutes it's madness that that this 10 minute model is based on on the sort of care we were able to, to provide um, many years ago when you would have multiple hundreds of 10 minute slots with somebody over their lifetime that same person and that added up to hours and hours of care and relationship based um care where where you really knew somebody and they trusted you and um you can't a 10 minute slot is a dispensing slot and that's the big worry i have about where things are going that total breakdown of continuity means that 
any good medicine is difficult to do, let alone lifestyle medicine, but particularly lifestyle medicine, because it does involve that that more person-centered care where you're asking people, you know, what really matters to you about your health right now? And then you sit back and listen and you listen and listen and you do less and, and get out that prescribing pad far less, it turns out, which in the end, to me, feels much less onerous because if we empower people, if we really listen to what they want to do, they're more likely to do it. It involves more of them doing stuff than us doing stuff. And, and eventually it's much less um, intensive, perhaps, than endless tests, endless uh, prescriptions, which then require monitoring. And we all get so, so, so sort of drawn down a rabbit hole with all of those things and, and can end up just reviewing the tablets, and not the person. I mean, I d- I'm sure listeners uh, experience this, you know, people booking in for a medication review when really that's not what they want to talk about. They want to talk about what, what matters to them in their life, their stress, the fact that they're a carer. And it's those things that are preventing them from making the changes they know they need to make, perhaps around, um, you know, diabetes or, or their mood. And that's where group consultations are, I'm finding, such a useful tool in primary care because it doesn't require any more time in your rotor but you get longer with people and and they get longer to think about what really matters to them. You talked a bit about that study that you were involved in, that really small pilot study. What other evidence is there to show that lifestyle medicine really actually makes a difference to to people's health? Yes, and this is where I get very excited because I think I'm I'm the geek in in the BSLM. So this this is what I think um, uh, we really need to get out there to people a bit more is that that there is really good evidence behind this. So the first piece of evidence is is the epidemiological studies that that I think everybody is is on board with. So we're talking about Interheart, Million Women, Epic, PrediMed, Lionheart study. These have shown a very strong association, which is different you know, from from uh, the sort of RCT level evidence, but there's a definite association between lifestyle and health. I think everybody accepts. But but very excitingly now with that, a lot of, sort of lab-based studies on the cellular mechanisms that explain why and how, which I think really gets a lot more people on board. So there's the, the epigenetics area. So Professor Elizabeth Blackburn, Nobel Prize winner, all her work into epigenetics and, and um, telomeres, and that, that our lifestyle factors turn on and off our genes. So I'm a child of the 1980s when, you know, it was all the Human Genome Project and our, our fate's not in the stars anymore, it's in our genes. And this sort of feeling of, of genetic fatalism that, you know, if your parents had it, well, you're going to have it too, and you just need to take drugs, there's nothing you can do. That message has definitely changed. Of course, there are genetic um, components to a lot of things, but not only are those genetic components only a small part, but they can also be modulated so they can be turned on and off through lifestyle. And the other exciting area is this idea of chronic inflammation underlying many of our long-term conditions. So that's work from Professor Hata Mistagil and his um, his groups. And the third one, which I think is getting everybody very excited, is, the, is microbiome science. So that idea that we're moving away from that food is just like fuel, just coal, you know, it's just calories, just chucking it. Doesn't matter if it's poor quality calories or or good quality calories. It's the quality of the food and the food matrix that matters because we're feeding our gut bugs and they are critical for um, our health. And and all of this sort of ties into the work around ultra processed food. And Kevin Hall has done a lot of work around that, which is very exciting. But 
what us clinicians want to know is what interventions actually work. And, and we are starting to see now um, randomized controlled trials of, of lifestyle interventions that we never saw before. And that upsets me because I think what worries me is that there's very little money in, in those life, you know, for, for, there's no drugs yes. to be sold. Yes. And that, that worries me that if you, if you look at the work around uh, asking patients what it is that you want uh, research to, to look into, if patients are asked, then they ask for evidence around lifestyle. Uh, they, 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 they rarely ask for more drugs. So it worries me that it's going to be hard to find funding for this. And, and, and you know, the first major study into food interventions for or lifestyle interventions for type 2 diabetes was funded by a charity, Diabetes UK. So that's the direct trial by Roy Taylor and, and his colleagues up in Newcastle. And, and we need many more of those. And that's going to need, uh, you know, government and IHR funding to try and get that type of intervention because it's complex. It's going to be very expensive. It's harder to assess because you can't have and it's not as easy to have placebos. It's not as easy to have control groups. Um, but it is possible. And the direct trial, I think, really did it for me when it showed that this intervention, which is a, a low calorie um, meal replacement, so a food manipulation and a behavior change um, support program, can put diabetes in, into type 2 diabetes into remission. So are there any other conditions which um, lifestyle medicine can help with? So the other big trial that really excites me um, is the SMILES trial by Professor Felice Jacker of the Food Mood Centre in, in Australia. So in that trial, this was looking at patients with, with treatment-resistant depression who tr failed on the second-line antidepressants, and they were hoping that just supporting them a bit with healthier eating might improve their mood scores a little bit. Well, it didn't. It actually put their depression into remission. So they reported disease, de complete um, freedom of, of de depressive symptoms in a, a substantial proportion. I think it's about, again, about that 40% mark. So, and, and then a number needed to treat that was as good as something like sertraline, an antidepressant that we frequently use. So we just aren't talking enough about, you know, not just food, but physical activity, social connection. There's also a finger randomized control trial. It's called a lifestyle intervention to prevent cognitive decline reported in the Lancet in 2015. So a lifestyle intervention reduced um, the risk of dementia. So, so more and more of these types of interventions are being looked at. There's a big one that Dean Ornish is now looking into yet to report on prostate cancer. So interventions for cancer. So he's, he's shown that with um, lifestyle intervention of prostate cancer, that the genes related to prostate cancer progression were downregulated by lifestyle intervention. Of course, you need much longer studies to show that it might actually you know, reverse cancerous changes, but it's a start. You mentioned much earlier on about um, the socioeconomic factors affect health. And obviously, we're in the middle of a pandemic still. Unfortunately, it seems to be resurging. Um, obviously, that's really shown shone a real light on sort of health inequalities and poorer outcomes from people from poorer um, socioeconomic backgrounds. Where does lifestyle medicine fit in in helping to address some of these health inequalities? Yeah, I'm really glad you've uh, brought this up, Emma, because it is something that 
um, I think we've got to address head on in, in, in lifestyle medicine because it's it, there is a perception that sort of wellness and lifestyle is, is only for the preserve of the wealthy and those who can and and the sort of Gwyneth Paltrow sort of aspect of it. But I, I, I refuse to be told that we must only talk about this with our wealthy patients and, and that we must therefore just prescribe to those who are facing greater challenges and hardship. I think that what it, what it means is that we must provide more support to those who need it most and that we mustn't underestimate the role in in particularly in primary care of supporting people to access the means to live well because it is so critical because of the effect of lifestyle so that's access to benefits letters for housing social prescribing access to food banks advocacy for those who are suffering abuse those who are vulnerable the importance of picking up child abuse and those that the idea of adverse childhood experiences setting you on a trajectory for life and most importantly, I think just validating people's experiences. Um, and, and that's a major role, I think, of a GP is those who aren't able to raise their voice. Uh, we, we must stand up for them more. And then when we do have leadership roles, that more of us are as GPs, as we're, we're forming primary care networks and, and sustainability transformation partnerships, we need to shout more about these groups and, and the fact that they need additional help. And I think we've got to be so careful in lifestyle medicine, that the lifestyle medicine is not a policy tool. We, we mustn't have what, what Marmot calls this lifestyle drift in policy that's very much blaming the individual and saying, well, you know, you know that you shouldn't eat ultra processed food because that we mustn't, it, it is not a tool for population health or public health. It is a tool for the individual small group and at a consultation level that when, it, when provided using very person-centered care, individualized to the person in front of you, where you listen to what matters most to them, if they need support with their housing first, before you talk about vegetables, then that's what you need to do. But I think we're, we're working very hard at the BSLM to, to really clarify that we do not want uh, the government to do lifestyle medicine. It is something that is not what, what we need them to address is the socioeconomic determinants of health. It's providing people with what they need to live healthily because it is so important. But clinicians can discuss these things at an individual level and everybody is able to make some changes if they're given the right support. I think. So you mentioned group consultations and you obviously have been involved in, in running group consultations to help people self-manage their long-term conditions. How do you think group consultations can help? And would is it something you would really encourage other practices to, to start doing? I was a very sceptical initially. I, you know, obsessed about confidentiality and thought, gosh, nobody's going to, you know, talk about private stuff. I've had, you know, 60-year-old men who I've struggled with for 10 years as their GP to, you know, the yes, but patient, you know, oh, I can't do it. And in a group broke down crying, um, shared that they really felt very angry about their mother who they were caring for. The other men in that, this were men in the group saying, come on, mate, you know, she wouldn't want to see you like this. What are you doing? You need to get some help. This is what I did. I was just where you were. This is why you can't move on with your diabetes, you know, um, transformational stuff. Uh, and and it just needed me to facilitate it. Um, so I think they're very powerful. I imagine, obviously, you would want to see lifestyle medicine adopted across the NHS. But what do you think needs to happen to, to make that a reality? 
it's happening um, is, is the first thing. And that's what's so heartwarming. I mean, I think it, things have got so bad um, throughout healthcare in terms of, you know, overprescribing too much medicine. Not only do we know that what we're doing is currently causing a lot of harm, it's also extraordinarily expensive when that money could be better spent on those socioeconomic determinants. But I think a lot of uh, it's grassroots this is happening from the grassroots. So the BSLM is is growing hugely. Um, and these are, are doctors are out there doing it, nurses, pharmacists, health coaches. So it is happening. And, and medical students are the, are the easiest to discuss about this because they haven't sort of been indoctrinated in, in the sort of paradigm of, of the, the old way of seeing things. Um, and that's what the BSLM is doing. That's what I'm doing with the um, Learning Academy. So we're, we're, we need to, we're planning to create uh, our own diplo- postgraduate diploma with, a, with a, um, a university. We can't yet um, announce that, but though those conversations are in discussion. Um, we're going to we need our own core UK textbooks. We're going to need professors in lifestyle medicine. We need more intervention trials, more pilots in, of real life um, and, and involvements of patients. You know, the James Lynn Foundation does some excellent work asking patients, what is it that you want us to, to research? We need them to do more of that for lifestyle medicine. Um, and we need a very careful eye on the agenda of this idea of precision medicine and um, you know big pharma. So we are not at all against medications. We have some fabulous medications and I prescribe every day, but we have got to put lifestyle interventions on the same um, level as, as those other interventions and present them in that way also in our consultations with patients to give them choice. Thanks very much to Ellen for speaking with me this week. You can find more information about the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine in the description for this episode of the podcast. Finally today, we have a bit of Christmas good news to finish with, which I think is a lovely story from Leeds. One of the city's primary care networks, York Road PCN, invited frail and elderly patients from the network's three practices to a special Christmas lunch at a local community centre. Along with enjoying a two-course lunch provided by Richmond Hill Elderly Action, the guests were also treated to some Christmas songs from children at the nearby primary school Richmond Hill Academy, as well as a round of bingo and some quizzes. The event was organised as part of the PCN's Population Health Management Project, which aims to help older patients become more socially active and addresses loneliness and isolation. Yeah, I think it's a really great uh, initiative. I mean, if they had any spare places, I'd be very happy to don a Christmas jumper and um, go up to Leeds myself. But but on a serious note, it really shows some of the creative ideas and good work that's being carried out by primary care staff within PCNs. And amid all the talk of sort of recruitment issues and IIF monies, it's, um, it's really nice to see real life examples of how uh, PCNs and primary care staff and GPs are making a difference in their communities. Yeah it's also really amazing to see people really going above and beyond like this when everyone's so busy in the current climate. One of the PCN coordinator who organised the lunch told the Yorkshire Evening Post that many of the people who attended that lunch would have been spending Christmas alone this year and so hopefully something like that helped them to feel less isolated in the run-up to the holidays. So if you have any good news stories that you would like us to highlight on the podcast, then please do get in touch. They can be about work you or members of your team are doing in your practice that's making a difference or anything from the world of primary care that you think would cheer up your colleagues. You can email us at gppodcast at haymarket.com. That's it for this episode. Don't forget you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice at gponline.com and follow us on Twitter at gponlinenews. Thank you for listening and thanks to Nick and Luke and to Dr Ella Fallows for speaking with me this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, then please do think about rating us and you can subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. 
This is our last episode for 2021, so we'll be back in the new year. All three of us would like to say thank you for listening to us this year and we'd like to wish all of you the best for the Christmas period and say good luck to those of you who will be working over Christmas, either providing booster jabs or elsewhere in the NHS. We'll see you in the new year. Bye.